Abuse. To treat a person with cruelty or violence, especially regularly or repeatedly. This week, we're talking about sexual abuse inside the church walls, the warning signs associated, and how fellow Christians can help. We are honored to be joined by Christy Burmeister, author of Act Normal, Memoir of a Stumbling Block. She's a former pastor's kid, a former Southerner, and she's here to share with us about sexual abuse inside the church. She herself is a survivor, and she's here to help us understand what this looks like and to pass on her wisdom of how we can help. Now let's get right to it. This is The Reckless Pursuit, a podcast crafted and created to dive deep into what it looks like to be a follower of Christ in a modern-day world. We span topics across the board to seek out truth and to gain a deeper understanding of one another, to find common ground and answers to life's hardest questions. We all have a story and a struggle, a calling and a conviction. Together, let's take a hard look at ourselves and effort to view what others see so we can be the best reflection of Christ possible. I'm Cody. And I'm Elaine. Now, let's get reckless. Hey everyone, welcome to The Reckless Pursuit, episode 6. We're so honored to have Christy Burmeister here with us sharing her heart on sexual abuse within the church. She has an amazing, amazing testimony and a whole lot to share uh, with all of us here today. And so we're going to get right into this, but before we do, I just want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, that's Cedar Temple Trade Company. And uh, they have an awesome promo code available for you at the end of the episode or in the show notes below. But with that being said, let's get right to our time with Christy Burmeister. Here it is. Hey, Christy, welcome to The Reckless Pursuit. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. How are you this morning? I'm doing well, thanks. So I think we're just going to open this up, and uh, we don't know a whole lot about each other, so I would love just to take a minute to get to know more about you, and if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about your story. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up uh, Mennonite, actually. Uh, Well, for the most part, I grew up Mennonite. My father was a Mennonite pastor, um, and I was in that church until I was 18. Um, And when I was 18, I actually was stalked by an older man from our congregation and left the church for about 10 years. Um, And I've only really been back within Christian circles for maybe four or five years now. Oh, wow. Um, And so when you say stalking, what did that look like? If you don't mind sharing a little bit about that. Um, That was kind of, you know, what you imagine in movies. (laughs) It was a a little bit like that. Um, He would break into our house. He would leave threatening letters. Um, He would do things like rip Bible pages out and underline scripture, um, threatening scripture about burning women and that kind of thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, and what was the church's response to this? Like, did, were you able to approach anyone in the church? What was their response? Um, their response was very poor. (laughs) Um, really in a church like that, the church council runs the show, even though my father was the pastor, he didn't really have any sort of real authority over the church. Um, and the church council, uh, sided with him over me in that issue. Pretty much no one was there to to reach back and, and help you in that. Right. 
Do you think, hmm, that's wild. Was this somebody that you knew or just somebody in the church? Um, it's somebody that we knew. Um, we had moved into that church when I was 14. And so we had known this man for four or five years at that point. Um, he had a lot of issues. And so he was sort of a, I don't want to call him a project of the church, really, but that's sort of what he was, um, where members of the church would help him out with things. So with all of that, uh, how were your parents in that situation? Were they supportive of you or were they kind of bound by the church's rules or how did that, how did that work out? Um, they were supportive of me. It put them in a really difficult position, especially my father, um, as he was the pastor of the church. We tried to work, you know, with the police department, our, our local police there. Um, stalking is something that's really difficult to prove um, and it's almost impossible to prosecute. Um, because stalkers are generally very clever and how they handle those things. They know just how far they can push things. And it ends up being a he said, she said sort of a situation right. for the most part. So my parents did their best to work within, you know, the legal structures that we had. Um, the church, there wasn't really anything that we could do within the church to resolve that issue. Um, my father did try to get the church council to ask him to attend a different church um, until we could get everything straightened out, and they would not do that. Did he have, was he just a member? Did he have a specific, like, uh, I guess, title in the church, or was he just a member attending? He was just a member. That's a crazy journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of talk about this right now. Um, all over Twitter and everywhere else about, the, of course, the Me Too movement that I know that I've seen uh, you're kind of a part of and, and contributing to. And then um, as well as Church Two, which is something that's a little more recent in, in my spectrum, I guess. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you know about maybe the Church Two movement and just kind of some of the stuff you've seen with that. Because I think a lot of people don't realize how much uh, that happens in church as well. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Um, you know, I was really excited whenever I saw that hashtag start trending. Um, I participated in Me Too. Um, and then Church Too, because there are so many stories like mine, and I mean almost exactly like mine, in addition to all the stories of just out-and-out -out assault, that I think people don't really understand the magnitude of how many people are involved in this and how often this happens. Um, every single time that I talk about what happened to me, I have several other people chime in and say, no, that happened to me too. Um, I know other pastors' daughters that have been stalked. I know other uh, young women in churches who have been harassed and followed around and, and these same things. Um, and it really all stems from the same issue is how we objectify women. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Elaine and I were talking about that what, just earlier this mm -hmm. week, I think, uh, about how, you know, we teach phrases like modest is hottest and things like that. But mm -hmm. all of those things still are just the objectification mm -hmm. of women trying to make them appear attractive and things like that. And exactly. So we're still even within church, we still objectify women. We just don't realize it. We, we do it with a different, um, within a different, these I guess. church terms really disguise it. Yeah, but it's still going around. I was going to say that's, a, that's exactly right. 
Um, you know, that was why whenever I wrote my book, um, the subtitle is Memoir of a Stumbling Block, um, because we tell young women that they're stumbling blocks to men. And how is that not turning them into an object and dehumanizing them? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's a great point. Um, just talking about how women receive all of the brunt of men's downfall in a lot of that way. And of course, I'm not trying to, you know, I am a guy, so I'm not trying to get on like a man hate or anything like that. But, you know, I was, I remember being a youth. It was always, there was never modesty preached toward men. There was never, um, you know, there was, of course, you know, don't look at porn, you know, keep yourself controlled. But it was most of the time the brunt fell on women and they were kind of more of the seductress almost kind of coined like that. And I don't think that's a very fair thing because a lot of times, you know, men are capable of controlling themselves, but women receive the brunt of men's actions in that. Yeah, exactly. So tell me a little bit about how you think people in church can help um, support those around them. I guess, how can they help see what's going on around them and, and I guess be there for those who are in those situations who especially maybe don't know how to to get out of that or maybe ask for help? Sure. I think that the most important part of that is listening. Uh, whenever somebody brings something up to you, that really puts them in a position of vulnerability. And so to listen non-judgmentally is the first step. Um, it's really easy, especially in communities where we feel like we know everyone, to be dismissive. Um, you know, there's so many times where you run into somebody and they say, oh, you know, that's just Paul. He's just a big flirt. When no, maybe Paul's a predator, you know. So it's important to listen, to take it seriously um, whenever issues are brought up. And to be really aware of things like grooming techniques where predators will come in and they don't just groom their potential victims. Sometimes they'll groom their communities as well where there's a reason that he was such a nice guy is a cliche phrase that we hear all the time um, because they're very well aware of how they come across to others and that that is a shield to protect them from the community. How does one, I guess, siphon through? I'm thinking about like whenever I was a youth pastor, one of the big phobias of being a youth pastor is being is having, I guess, accusations brought against them, whether it be, you know, of course, like uh, in my situation, you know, that was one of the big things that you're warned of, I guess. And I've heard this from a couple different churches. If like if you're a youth pastor, make extra sure you don't ever come across the wrong way. There was a girl um, in that was a student of mine whenever I was teaching who had a history with um, falsely accusing uh, people of of rape and she of course in my instance it was a little easier because she had been you know she had diagnosed with uh with a, an illness where basically she couldn't distinguish like lies from truth and so like she was being treated and like she was being helpful she was a really sweet girl i never had any issues with her at all but a lot of people like caution me for that you know and so in a society where you kind of have the back and forth of people saying, oh, well, they're just looking for attention versus people who really are being victimized. And there's there's real people out there that are being stalked. And there's kind of a play on that, I think. And and the, the predators play on the whole thing of, of, oh, well, it's just a false accusation, you know, and try to pin it back on them. And then you have people who really are being victimized. And then you have some people who who 
maybe, I mean, how do you distinguish that? I mean, I have no idea. How would you say to help distinguish that? Oh, sure. Um, you know, and with my father being a pastor, that was something that he had to be concerned with, too. Um, I think that really what it boils down to is credibility, for the most part. Whenever I hear accusations, I think, what does the person who is making this accusation stand to lose in this situation? Right. Um, you know, for me, I lost my entire church. I lost my hometown. I lost everything. Um with this. And so it, it made sense objectively <laughs> to believe that I was telling the truth over what he was telling people. Um, and then in the, the case with that you were mentioning, where the girl is known to have issues, um, that if an accusation came from her, it would be less credible. So what do you believe is the lead factor to abuse in church? You know, honestly, I think that it's uh, enabling congregation members. Um, it's not so much that we haven't, I mean, we do have an issue with predators in the church, but there's a reason why they feel so safe in our churches. Yeah. Um, and that really boils down to the fact that so many congregation members feel like it's not their responsibility to do anything about it because they're not the ones being predators. Um, but we create these safe havens for them where we excuse their behaviors. We justify things that they do. And what I found a lot of times is that whenever things even are coming out, people don't want to admit that they might not have seen these things. You know, we all want to believe we're a good judge of character. Right. And so we don't want to think that somebody maybe we are friends with could be capable of doing those things. Right. It's, it's basically the whole thing of you're in a group of people that are all claiming they're trying to do the right thing. And when you see someone doing the wrong thing, you know, forgiveness is our first, you know, it's what we're taught. Yes. It's what's instilled in us. And so that's what we push for. And I think in sometimes the people who like pretend that they don't see anything or whatever, because they're afraid that that may be them in that situation and they don't want to put themselves out there and potentially be in that situation as well. Right. So put themselves in the line of fire. Yeah. How big is the church to movement right now? Like how, how common, cause I don't think people realize this is stuff going on around them mm -hmm. and like how, <laughs> you've heard a lot of stories like this pretty much spans everywhere. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because, you know, I grew up in a, in a fundamentalist church. Um, and so we liked to think that those kind of things didn't happen in our churches because we were so holy and pure and <laughs> couldn't happen here. Um, but what's coming out with the Church 2 movement and silence is not spiritual is that it happens in every church. There is no such thing as a church that's immune from this. Um, and so it's really about people taking their blinders off and seeing things for how they really are. Um, I think we're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg on this. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to be seeing more stories about this. There have been some survivor blogs out for a long time um, that have been reporting a lot of this. And I'm thinking it's starting to go a little more mainstream now. So for those people who are in, you know, just casual churches who maybe have something like this going on around them, uh, what would you tell those people? Like, you know, they're the people that are scared to speak up. They, they maybe have something going on. They, maybe they're questioning themselves, you know, maybe they're questioning, uh, maybe it's just now starting and they're questioning, you know, should I say something? Maybe I'm taking this wrong, but if they're feeling uncomfortable about, about something, what would you tell them? 
you know, we do need to count the cost of everything that we do. Um, and there is a cost a lot of times associated with standing up for vulnerable people. But the whole the whole point of the gospel is that, you know, we, well, it's not the whole point of the gospel, but um, that is definitely a message of the gospel is that we do stand up for people um, and we do do the right thing even when it costs us. And so I think that a lot of times it's fear that keeps people, that holds them back. And we need to recognize that for what it is. You know, there's something interesting about church to me, um, you know, because we teach a lot about modesty and and being contained to ourselves and like, you know, especially in, and I speak from, especially in youth, that's pushed a mm-hmm. whole lot is like, don't do this, don't do that, you know, be very careful. But then we also have kind of a counterculture of like, love everyone around you, hug when you walk in the door, you know. Like it almost invites that. Right. It's very touchy-feely, mm-hmm. you know. It's a very emotional place, and so it's very touchy-feely. Um, and I guess, like, in my head, I'm trying to figure out how can we help distinguish those things? Because I could, you know, trying to put myself in a perspective of of a, a, a young woman who is, you know, very awkward by maybe someone in the church when she walks in, you know, she has the obligation to make me go and hug those people as she walks by or hold hands with them during prayer and things like that. And I could see that being a very scary thing for someone whenever she's already in a place of fear. She feels, you know, threatened, but yet this is almost expected of her. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, one thing that I struggled with for a lot of years was was that. Um, that there is an expectation of vulnerability whenever you walk into a church, you know, and there's, there's a very real uh, issue with some people having been traumatized uh, within the church and then developing PTSD symptoms out of that. And I've heard from people who just walking into a church and, and like that, having to hug people and have their physical, personal boundaries um, violated by well-meaning people it can be really triggering for that. With that, I guess it's just trying to find, or I guess like you were saying earlier, it's giving them the the safety to feel that they can go and talk. And, and you know, there's the real fear there of having to face, you know, there's a downside to that because you're having to try to convince people who would not want to think that way about someone in their church. But it's having to give people the freedom to be able to stand up and say, hey, this makes me uncomfortable. Even if there's you know, it's a person who maybe they're not intending to be that way. I've met people like that who are very, you know, flirtatious and inviting and opening. (laughs) Right. And who maybe don't even realize they're that way. But still, if it makes someone uncomfortable, they shouldn't be obligated to be like that to those people. You know, you should never be put in a place of discomfort. Right. And it's just about respecting personal boundaries at that point. So what is something you wish you could tell people in the church to help unify them on this subject? Um, You know, I wish that more of them would listen to stories from survivors uh, from within the church. I think there's a real lack of understanding uh, going on. It's not so much that the people in the church who are complicit are bad people. They're generally good people who want to do the right thing. Um, There's just these barriers in their mind to doing the right thing. So I think that it starts with listening uh, with an open mind and being non-judgmental about that. So in a, in a congregation where maybe, you know, I guess things are a little more like open-mindedness maybe isn't as, as popular 
what does an open mind look like to you? Really, it's about, well, I think it kind of goes back to a lot of what we were talking about with modesty and the, and the purity culture stuff is so often within churches, whenever a victim does speak up, you know, they're blamed for their own victimization that they were asking for it somehow. And so listening with an open mind and being non-judgmental really means that you're not making assumptions about what happened or why it happened. You're listening to the facts of what happened. That's good. And I think that's important to take time to to truly just let, I guess, let it all in and not come in with biased opinions and to allow people to share their heart freely um, so you can get to the root of things. And and not just one person, bring it to a group of people. Like the, There needs to be a, a, a panel maybe of people there who can who can address these issues instead of just letting them get swept under the rug. Well, and I think especially in church that we should be non-judgmental and listen to people, but also like outside of church. Like that's what we, you know, I feel like that's what the Me Too movement is, is just listening to people and having an open mind. Right. Uh, and you said that uh, you stepped away from church for a little while. What was, and, and you're just now kind of dabbling in that again, what was it like coming back into this culture after you you know, after what you went through? Terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) It was really scary. It's still scary. Um, Because of that, I keep mentioning the word vulnerability, but that's really what it's all about. Um, And I have daughters now. Um, I'm a little older. Uh, And so it's scary, not just for me, but because I know what can happen to girls within the church. So it's, been very tentative (laughs) so what was it about I guess church that that drew you back into giving it a second chance I know a lot of people who you know maybe have stepped out because of hurts because of things just like this what was it that has led you to try to give it a second chance um it's really kind of ridiculous but uh my the rest of my family stayed within the church I was the only one that left um And my mother added me to a Bible discussion Facebook group without asking my permission. (laughs) Um, And it was full of a lot of fundamentalists. (laughs) And I got really mad when I was reading some of the stuff that they were posting. So I went and I hadn't owned a Bible for like about a decade at that point. And I went and bought one so that I could like attack them with scripture whenever they were (laughs) saying stupid things. Um, and in the process of that, I reread the Gospels. Um, I'd read them as, as a teenager and, you know, junior high and all that. Um, but rereading them as an adult, having been through what I had been through, um, you know, I didn't see a Jesus that would condemn me for holding a boy's hand. You know? um, what I saw was a God that had made himself small so that he could live as a human and so that he could live as one of us, and he suffered as one of us. Yeah. And so it was this huge shift in the way that I had been thinking about things. That's 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 fantastic. So basically you bought a Bible to, to come back against the, you know, your fundamentalist friends right. online, and it, it led you back into understanding the true Jesus, yeah. you know, for what he really was. That's wild. 
That's pretty cool, though. In in your words, what is true church to you? Outside of like the hurt and the issues, what is what should church look like to you? Well, I think church should definitely be a community, um, and it needs to be. You know, there's there's that line, and we talked about that a little earlier with forgiveness that we have to toe because yes, there's grace, but there also needs to be accountability as well. And that's the piece that I feel like is really missing in churches right now. Yes, absolutely. You had said there about community. And this is something Elaine and I have been talking a lot about lately. Like what does that look like and stuff? Yeah. What does what does community look like to you? We have a group of people who are constantly saying like they want community uh, and they're not finding it necessarily in church. But they don't really know what community looks like. They just know they need it. So what is your definition of community? Sure. You know, it's it's interesting because a lot of times people are looking for a group of people who all believe exactly the same things that they believe. But that to me isn't really what community is about. I think it's about mutual support and protecting one another, looking out for one another's best interests. And it's really about loving each other and Whenever you truly love and care about somebody else, you're going to make sure that their needs are met and they're going to make sure that your needs are met. Um, And so that's really what it's more about than just a group of people who all agree on things. So what has been like the biggest hurdle you faced through all of this? Uh, Dealing with Christians. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like that's a daily struggle. (laughs) Yeah. That's been really interesting because... um, you know, I do still get a lot of uh, backlash. <laughs> they don't like some of the things that I say or do. But the interesting part of that is, you know, I've over the past few years met some really awesome Christians too who really do live it out. Um, and so it's, there's a tension there with, you know, you get both. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to me because... Uh, I've heard a lot of people say lately that they are followers of Christ, but they hate the word Christian just because mm-hmm. of the, the baggage the, that yeah, it the carries. baggage it's carrying now. Yeah, I did that for a while. I was a quote quote Christ follower, not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard because you. But you I know. think like we all have a moment in our lives that we feel that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and rightly so, I think, because Christianity in and of itself has done a lot of crazy things over the years. I mean, it's done good things, but there's been a lot of bad done in the name of Christianity mm-hmm. too. It's kind of become a, a, you know, it's a collection of of good acts and whack jobs. And so <laughs> it's hard to associate yourself so broadly with something that you identify so narrowly in, you know. Yeah, and in some um, Christian circles, they, they do have a very narrow definition of who is and who isn't a Christian. Right. And uh, for me, coming out of fundamentalism, uh, if I didn't accept, you know, the, the six-day creation story, then I wasn't a Christian. Um and so for some of us, that's part of the issue too. Yeah, there's a lot of things I think within the Bible. You know, the Bible is a is a collection of books written over a very long period of time. And there's a lot in the Bible that can be taken a lot of different ways to a lot of people. And I think within Christianity, there are some things that, you know, like there's the red letters that Jesus himself taught, and then there's a whole lot else. And the rest of it, I always love hearing about other people's hearts on it because there's just so much diversity in the way a lot of things can be taken. And I think that's the beautiful thing of the Bible is is being able to hear other people's perspectives and what God speaks to them through that. 
just kind of more of a, a personal, I guess, maybe question here, but what is it about, um, about God and about Jesus that inspires you personally? Um, I think that really for me, and it may change in the future, I think that, um, I think that as we go through different periods of our life, sometimes we connect with different aspects of God. Um, right. So I'm still very attached to Christ on the cross, <laughs> the suffering right. God uh, right now, because it's for so long, I was shut up and silenced and felt like nobody could really understand what I'd gone through. And really the reality of it is God understands exactly what I've gone through because he went through something very similar um, and I wasn't crucified. So that's a plus on my side. Um, But he was betrayed by people that he loves. He loves us um, and we betrayed him and he was, you know, hurt and he suffered in those ways. So that's really what I'm attached to these days. So where can people find your book? On Amazon right now. And we will include a link to that for mm. everyone who's listening in the show notes. And where else can we find you, Christy? Where Where are you most active at online? Um, you know, I have a website, ChristyBurmeister.com. Um, I blog over there. And mostly I'm on Twitter these days, too. Which is actually where I found you to begin right. with. <laughs> if you could leave one final thought in the in the mind of maybe a young Christian woman who who right now is listening to this and and there's something going on in her life and she feels that she's alone or or doesn't know how to go about this, what is the one one thing you would want to leave her with? I think the most important message is that you are not alone, that there are a lot of us out there who understand. Um, Whenever you're going through something like that, it can be very isolating and the people around you can sometimes intentionally isolate you, but you're very much not alone. Well, with that, I think we're going to wrap this up. And Christy, I thank you so, so yes, very thank much. Thank you for being our first Yay. guest. Yay! <laughs> Again, we want to thank Christy for being on the show. You can find her book, Act Normal, Memoir of a Stumbling Block, on Amazon. You can also follow Christy on her blog, at christyburmeister.com, as well as her Twitter, at Christy Burm. As always, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash the Reckless Pursuit Podcast or on Twitter at underscore TRP podcast. You can even drop us an email at mail at the All of this information will be in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. Now, be brave, be bold, be reckless. We'll talk soon. This week's episode is brought to you by Cedar Temple Trade Company. Cedar Temple is an apparel and home goods line on a mission to bring curiosity back to the Word of Christ with fresh, modern designs. They desire to not just spread the Word, but to look good doing it. Their shirts are some of the most comfortable tees you could wear, and they're constantly adding new products and designs to the mix. Oh, and did I mention that Cedar Temple is actually Elaine's and my very own brand? Yeah, that's right. When you order from Cedar Temple... You're helping Elaine and I do what we love and continue in our very own reckless pursuit. Because we are so thankful for all of you who take the time to listen to our show, Cedar Temple is offering a 20% discount on any single item you purchase. Head over to cedartemple.com and use offer code TRPPODCAST in all caps at checkout. That's T-R-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, all caps, at cedartemple.com. Now, go inspire.